Um, All right, I am in John chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 24 through 29. Um, But let me sort of introduce this whole Christianly series. There's a guy named John Stott that I love. Um, He's no longer alive, but just great theologian, um, guy from the UK. And he actually would say, um, he would talk about talking, living, and acting Christianly. And so immediately when you think talking Christianly or acting Christianly or thinking Christianly, you're thinking religious. And so sort of what the whole idea of this series is, is we want to flip this thing up on its head and go, okay, what does it actually mean to talk, think, and act Christianly? So last week, Steve uh, kicked a series off, and he did how to think, or what does it mean to think Christianly? And sort of the essence of that is living from um, delight, living from grace, living from the freedom we have in Christ, um, not living for the approval of the Lord, or for grace, or for, we're actually living from an overflow. Um, Today, we're doing talk Christianly, and I'm going to use one of my favorite characters. As you're going to find, I have all sorts of favorite characters in the Bible. But one of my favorite, which is Thomas. And he gets a really bad rap known as Doubting Thomas. Well, I love Doubting Thomas because guess what? I have doubts. I've had doubts, and the Lord has to meet us in those doubts and deliver us from them, right? So if you're here today and you're a little skeptical, I've got good news. You're in good company. This is a good place to go, Lord, what are you doing? So we are talking uh, this morning about talking Christianly. I'm going to read John chapter 20. We might even have it up there. Look at that, 24 through 31. Now, um, just Quick background, Jesus had just appeared. Um, The disciples are scared to death. Jesus has been killed. Um, And they are hanging out in the upper room where they would have had the Last Supper, which is most likely um, a lady named Mary's house, whose son is John Mark. We've talked a little bit about that. They're hanging out in the room. The door's locked and barred, and they're, like, scared to death that the Romans are going to come get them and drag them off and kill them too. Now, there's only ten people in the room. Uh, Judas has killed himself, Jesus is in the tomb, and Thomas is MIA. We don't know where Thomas is. So ten of them are there, and Jesus appears to them. And uh, then we're going to pick up in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the twelve, and he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. And believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but are written that you may believe. Holy Spirit, as we open your word this morning, would you enliven our hearts? Father, we're not here for great music. We're not here for great preaching. We're not here because there's a cool setup in a room. We're not here to see a funny-looking bald guy. Lord, we are here to encounter your very presence. 
And Father, I pray in the moments that follow, what happens is you open our hearts, open our minds, and change us and conform us into the very image and likeness of Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would do your work so wholly and completely that Wilmington wouldn't be the same. Lord, would you give us faith for what you want to do here in this city in the next 10 years? In your name we pray. Amen. I was a uh, Boy Scout, believe it or not. And in 1992, I was at, it might have been 93, but it was somewhere like that. I was at um, Camp Bowers. Jay, I know you've been to Camp Bowers. Anybody else been to Camp Bowers? Look at that, Jack. And, and my dad. Okay, we got the couple in the room. So I was at this summer camp, and at summer camp, you stay in these canvas tents on this wood frame, and you have these little stripped-down cots, and there's two guys in there, and you have two foot lockers at the end of your cot, like a big bin or something, and it always stinks, and it's really hot, and there's bugs everywhere, and I was rooming with this guy named Gibson. And so we got in there Sunday night, I think we arrived, and uh, I knew Gibson a little bit from my scout troop, and I don't know what got into me, because I was 12 years old, and I just started sharing Jesus with Gibson. Monday night I shared Jesus, we lay down Tuesday night, and I started talking about my relationship with Jesus, and Wednesday night I asked him about his faith, and if he went to church, if he knew Jesus, and he'd been to church all his life, but had never even heard about a relationship with Jesus, and Thursday night we were talking some more about it, and he started asking me some questions, and Friday night we talked a little bit more, and on Saturday night he decides to surrender his life to Jesus at little hot camp bowers with the mosquitoes biting and the foot lockers at the bottom of the cots, and I was blown away. I remember going, I was like, how do I, how do I even lead? So, so I, I literally prayed, and I did not the best job I could do as a little 12-year-old kid. And he prayed after me. And right there, Gibson surrendered his life to Jesus at Camp Bowers. And that was my first experience of walking with someone on the journey of um, sort of going from a church attender or maybe some awareness of uh, God, but watching him over the course of these short few days, and he actually came to the point where he's ready to surrender his life to Jesus. Now, I want to talk about that because we're actually going to talk about Thomas's journey. And Thomas's journey took more than a few days. Thomas actually walked with the Lord Jesus for three years. But there's a span of time here where Thomas goes on some changes and goes on a journey a little bit like what Gibson went on. And I think if we, if we look at the passage we just read, this passage begins with great fear. Who's afraid? The disciples, right? Everybody's scared to death. Furniture's piled on the door. They're scared they're going to die. They're scared they're going the way of Jesus. They're scared because they've given three years of their life. They've given everything. And the guy they gave it all for, where is he? Gone. Dead. There's already rumors sort of going around the city that they stole his body. They're afraid if the, if the Romans don't come get him, then the Israelite leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders, are going to come get him. But notice something. They're not afraid of God. They're afraid of man, afraid of women, afraid of people. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of the cross. And the one thing I want you to see as we move down here and pull out four, I think, key points of what it means to talk or how do you talk Christianly is you can never shut Jesus out of your life. Where's Jesus show up? Right through the locked door right in their midst, right where they are, right in their turmoil, right in their angst, right in their depression, right in their fear, right in their doubt, right in their mess. 
And some of you, like me, have mess in your life, and you need a little Jesus to show up. I don't mean little Jesus like you mean Jesus to show up. And I love this because his first word is actually shalom. It's peace be with you. Peace be with you. And the one thing the disciples needed was peace. So how do you talk Christianly? Let's look at Thomas. Let's think about how do you talk Christianly? And if we went around the room, we could probably all give a bunch of Sunday school answers, right? But I'm going, okay, Lord, take us to the heart of the matter. I'm not talking about ugly jokes or cussing or not. I'm, I'm like, how do, you, how do you talk Christianly? Number one is you be authentic. You be authentic. Alfred Lord Tennyson actually wrote in a poem, he said, he said, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. There lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than half the creeds. Is it okay to question? Yes. Is it okay to doubt? Yes. Do you want to stay there forever and ever, ad ad infinitum? No. Is it okay to go through seasons where you go, God, yes, it is. Thomas didn't believe And he couldn't believe, but I think he's trying to believe here. He is wanting to believe. He's going, how do I believe? How can I believe? I want to believe, but I have got to stick my hands in his nail-printed hands and feet and into his side. Thomas demanded evidence. You know, the Christian faith actually holds water. You know that? What we believe historically, archaeologically, biblically, it actually holds water. One of the things I think we've done by making Christianity a motivational service instead of a place where we dig into the depths of what does the word say, how do we understand it, how do we apply it to our lives, how do we make it real, is that people walk out and we feel good for a few minutes, but when the storm rises and the hurricane comes and the floodwaters come, and guess what? It's going to come, right? You know it. And if you're not in it right now, praise God, you will be at some point soon. If you're in it right now, praise God, you're going to be out of it at some point soon. Can you say yes? Because that's the journey of life. But when faith becomes that real deep thing, takes root inside of you, and you're able to begin to be authentic with where you are in the journey, the Lord Jesus can begin to work most powerfully in your life. I love that Thomas demanded evidence. I love that he wanted real faith. He wanted real belief. The motivational speech is not going to hold you, but when you begin to lock in with Christ Jesus, to know him and to be known by him. That's why I'm always going, get that one-year Bible and get in it. It's not because you need another to-do thing on your list. I know you don't, right? But literally, it takes like 14 or 16 minutes to read that little one-year Bible every day. And it gives the God of the universe an opportunity to meet you in the middle of life and speak to you. It gives him an opportunity to get in there and you can walk with him. But see, Thomas was a discerning person. And he's literally going, either Jesus rose with a physical body or he's still dead. There's no gray areas with me. If I don't see him with my own eyes, I'm never going to believe you guys. Thomas was sincere. He's literally saying, 
I've got to see to believe, and I want to believe. You know, one of my favorite leaders and revivalists is Billy Graham. And if you look at Billy Graham's life, he actually had a crisis of faith early on. He just started preaching. He'd preached in Charlotte, and he'd preached up in, I think, Michigan or somewhere. And he had this crisis of faith where he actually went, is the Bible the true word of God? And if you read his story and a couple of different biographies, he settled that. And his very next stop is Los Angeles in that big circus tent where he had all the big breakthrough in his ministry. And I would argue the seeds of revival began in America. But does doubt come before a big breakthrough? Yes. Does doubt happen? Yes. How we settle it, how you wrestle it out, how you deal with it, how you think it through, who you talk to about it, how you work it out is vitally important. And I am convinced that one of the greatest things we can do is be authentic. In fact, some of you might walk away and go, man, Michael might have shared too much about his personal life today. That's okay, because I am not perfect. I never will be perfect, and I'm actually inviting you all into a journey as I grapple with how to walk with Jesus in this day and age. How do you walk with Jesus with a family? How do you walk with Jesus with kids who are making decisions? How do you walk with him in the midst of difficult circumstances? And I'm inviting you with me, with Christ Jesus, to walk this thing out. And I would say to you more than anything else, be real. Be authentic. Be yourself. And it's okay. It's okay to go, I'm hurting, I'm a mess, I need help, my finances aren't good, I'm looking at something on my phone I wish I wasn't, I think I'm at risk of doing this or that or whatever. It is good. And there is safety in coming to the right people at the right time. Now, am I saying we should all get up and air everything? No. No, 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 no. But I am saying, if you don't have some people in your life, whether it's a small group, whether it's somebody you have breakfast with, whether it's somebody you call on the phone, if you don't have some people in your life that you're being real with, you're missing it. Can I be that bold? You are absolutely missing it. Because part of the Christian life is being authentic and being real. I have eight or ten different people. Some of them aren't even in the city. Some of them I have a once a month phone call with. Kenny's one of them that I just talked about. Once a month, I just get on the phone. Where are you? Where are you really? How are you doing? How is your walk with the Lord? How is it really? How's your marriage? How's your kids? What's happening? And we just wrestle it out because it's in that authenticity that freedom happens. It's in Thomas's doubt that Jesus met him most powerfully. So number one, how do you talk Christianly? You be authentic. Number two, how do you talk Christianly? You stay connected. Oh man, this is a foot big time in Christianity right now. There are more people, I bet there's 10,000 people in this city that have given up on church and not on God. Maybe more. And you know what? I think the church has done it really bad, and I've been a part of it. And I understand why we're all hurt, and we're all disappointed, and we're all frustrated, and we're angry at the organized thing, and they've done this, and they've said this, and they kicked out that person, and they fired this person, and blah, 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 blah. And is the church a big mess? Yes. I drug my heels on planting this church because I went, Lord, I don't want to be a part of the mess. I don't want to be a part of the problem. I'd rather just cut grass and be a landscaper. I like dirt. I like flowers. I like putting bushes in the ground. I like moving that stuff around. It doesn't talk back to me. 
Lord had other plans. Thomas got isolated. Thomas must have had some sort of temperament where he had a very literal heart and mind. He wanted everything simple. He wanted it clear. He wanted it plain. He had a temperament that probably finds it very difficult to share his burdens. He had a temperament that finds it difficult to come and meet with somebody and go, hey, I need this or I need that or I got to be honest, I'm struggling here. And because he isolated himself, he actually missed the blessing when Jesus showed up. He missed it. I mean, Jesus showed up. One paragraph before, I didn't read it, but Jesus literally came and stood among the disciples, and where was Thomas? M.I.A. Now, I would say to any Christian everywhere, find a biblically-based church and get into a community. And don't just go on Sundays, figure out a way to meet with somebody for breakfast, to have a cup of coffee, to get in some sort of accountability relationship. Get vitally connected. Show up at Henry's at 12.30 and hang out with Wendy. But the point is, get in a small group where you can begin to walk with a group of people. Because are you going to trip? Yes. The question is, when you do, have you involved enough people around you that you can reach out and say, hey, I need some help? We have people in Abby and my life that help us with all manner of things. All manner of things. I'm like, as many people as I can get helping us is good. So I can reach out and go, I need help. And I'm telling you, that is good. You must stay connected. You must. You cannot do it out there by yourself alone. Thomas literally was brooding alone in misery, missing the blessing, missing the revelation of Christ Jesus, nursing his own disappointment, his own wounds, his own sadness, his own grief. And was he right to be grieved? Was he right to be sad? Was he right to be disappointed? Yes. Are you right to be sad, grieved, or disappointed? Probably. But listen to me. The enemy would like nothing more than to get you into a place where you're not living a life of authenticity and where you're living a life that is disconnected. We had a fire at my house last night. We have a um, fire pit that stands up about, I don't know, three feet, and it's a um, copper basin. So we had a fire in there. And I had four or five logs um, on the fire. And remember what it started doing yesterday evening about five? Raining, that's right, starts dripping. And as long as those logs stayed together, they kept burning even in the rain. Now, what happens if I take those four logs and I put one in the yard over here and one over here and one over here and I leave one in the fire pit? What? They're going to go out. Church, we are just like fires. We are just like fires. If you are not laid across other believers and if our lives are not built together and if we're not walking with one another and sharing deeply of our own lives, you will go out. Let's say it again. You will go out. I'm not talking about lose your salvation. Don't get all weird on me. I'm talking about you cannot walk passionately with the Lord Jesus. You cannot walk full of his spirit. You cannot be an effective disciple of Christ. Your life will not be conformed in the image of likeness of Christ Jesus unless you are walking in community. If you're not in community, you need to get in one. Michael, I don't know how to get in one. Maybe you need to start something. I'm going to go, what do you like to do? Get in a small group. 
Get with a group of guys who want to surf in the morning or play basketball in the morning. Get with a group of gals who want to eat lunch together. Whatever it is, you can do it. You can get together, but you need community or you will go out. Thomas got isolated here. Thomas got separated. If you look at people who've committed suicide, you know what happens before they commit suicide almost always? What? They've gotten isolated one way or another. They've gotten alone. Listen to me, church. When we come to one another and we share openly, when we invite people into our life, when we ask them to speak into our life, when we ask them to share their life with us and us with them, it is powerful. It is powerful. And I don't know about you, but I don't really care about how many seats are in our church building or how great our worship is or how great our preaching is or what we all look like. But here's what I do care about. I want to look back in 10 years and go, look what God did in our midst. Because we chose to be a group of people who were real and authentic. And we chose to be a group of people who were committed to being connected with one another. Sharing of our lives, inviting people into our lives, ruthless with our own failures and talking to each other because that is where you find freedom. That's where you get set free. That's where the Lord Jesus meets you. And Thomas got isolated out by himself and missed the presence and the blessing of God. I'm preaching to you today. It's okay. But you need to get connected. third point that I see in this passage is how do you talk Christianly? You need to make it personal. So I want to ask sort of a rhetorical question here. I want you to think about it with me. When did the great Apostle Thomas become a Christian? Was it when Jesus called him and he left everything to follow? Was it somewhere in the three years? There was an incident that happened right before Jesus went and raised Lazarus from the dead, and Thomas issues a declaration to Jesus because they thought Jesus was going to be killed then, and he said, I'll go with you to death. Was it then? When did Thomas become a Christian? Let's define Christian as an exchanged life. Can we do that? That's how I define it, really simply. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's an exchanged life. Now, I wrote out a little bit more complicated paragraph, and I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk about Thomas again. All right, so uh, an exchanged life means repenting of your sins, past, present, and future, as a result of the revelation of the holiness of God, and choosing as a personal act of your will to believe in the divine revelation that Jesus is God, therefore confessing with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, and your God, and believing in your heart that he was raised from the dead and is seated with God in heaven, thus laying down your old sinful nature and taking up his new divine nature and living daily from that relationship with Christ. So back to my first definition. It's just an exchange life. You just come to Jesus and you go, I am a mess. Here, you take my mess, and I'm going to take your righteousness. That's good news. I don't know about for y'all, but that's good news for me because I'm all about Michael being gone and dead and Jesus living his life in me and through me. Because when I'm left to my own devices, I tend to become self-centered and arrogant and independent and isolated and non-authentic and religious, and the list just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? 
Come on, be honest. You do too. If you don't, go home, look in the mirror, and stop lying to yourself. <laughs> when did Thomas become a Christian? I'm not going to stand up here today and I'm not going to put a point on the map and say this is exactly where Thomas became a Christian. But I think an error in the American church is that we tend to think steps, three steps, two steps, one step, seven steps to a successful life, four steps to marital happiness, three steps to your best life ever. We, we tend to think steps. I don't even know how it happened, but we think steps instead of journey. Okay? And now the error of this, what this promotes in our whole culture, is that we tend to go us and them. Oh, they're not a Christian yet, but I am. You see what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden we can look down at people, we can be, oh, they're not, they're not a Christian. Are they a Christian? They're not a believer yet. I want to go, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. When did the Apostle Thomas become a believer? Probably in this interaction we're reading. So that means for how many years was he on a journey? You hear me? So when you have an interaction with somebody out there at work, at school, in your neighborhood, getting the newspaper, at soccer practice, at the kids' school, at wherever you go, when you have an interaction, the, the, the paradigm change becomes this person is on a journey to find Christ. More importantly, Christ is on a journey to wake them up to the true reality. And you begin to see humanity from that lens, not an us and them, but people that are on a journey. I mean, that, that changes everything. There's a, I'm not going to go through it today, but there's something called the Engel scale that I love. A guy named James F. Engel, he was a, a professor of something, and um, he, he, he kind of wrote out the steps by which a person actually comes to saving faith in Christ, and then some steps thereafter. And it is a process. Like if you go back to when you became a believer, how you became a believer, and some of you might be even here today going, I don't even know that I'm a believer. It's possible to be around church your whole life. It's possible to serve in church. It's possible to teach Sunday school. It's possible to do a whole lot of things and not yet have said, my Lord and my So how do you talk Christianly? You make it personal. I love this because Jesus actually walks into the room here. And I think when you look at all the passages that happened after Jesus was resurrected, I think he's actually training the disciples on something, like something that's really key. And we tend to think Jesus walked through the door. It doesn't say that specifically. It just says the door was locked and Jesus, what? Appeared. Appeared. I think what he's actually training the disciples to understand is, I was here the whole time. Because he appears and then he disappears. I would actually suggest to you that what happened theologically is not that Jesus walked through the locked door, which he can do, but that he was there the entire time. And he actually begins to train the disciples that I am here in preparation for them receiving the Holy Spirit who is with them wherever they go. We Christians, if we have a problem, it's forgetting that he's here. 
in us, with us. He is here. So Jesus appears, and he could have blasted Thomas. You loser! What are you doing out by yourself? What are you doing isolating? You have this tendency to brood. You have a tendency to get all downcast. You get depressed. You get all self-pity. You're looking at your own navel, blah, 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 blah. And what does Jesus say? He simply says, and he, I love this too because he authenticates Thomas's uh, doubt. He authenticates that it's okay to be in a journey. It's okay to be in a process. It's okay to not know the final answer. And he, he literally says, here, put your hands in my scar. Touch my side. And, and what we don't know in this passage or any of the other Gospels is if Thomas actually did it. We don't know. One of the things that I'm going to do when I get to heaven is I'm going to go see King Jesus, and I'm going to put my hands in his scars, not because I don't believe, but because I do. And I'm so grateful for his grace, and I'm so grateful for the price he paid, and I'm so grateful that he has saved and is saving and will continue to save Michael Mattis. I can't wait to walk through those heavenly gates and to greet him. I'm going to go find him. But Jesus does not shame Thomas. He invites him to touch him, to look, to see for himself, to deal with his own pain, to deal with his own disappointment. And he reveals to them all that he's been in the room the entire time. Uh, there's a book um, that's fascinating to me. It's called Dreams and Visions by Tom Doyle. Anybody heard of it? Dreams and Visions by Tom Doyle. It's worth writing down if you're a reader. Um, it's actually about the revival that's happening in the Muslim world. And it, it's exactly actually what Clive and Ruth are over ministering to is a group of people who, um, I cannot say the country, a group of people who are coming to Christ supernaturally, um, oftentimes by dreams and visions. Jesus is literally appearing in their midst. And this is not a hypothetical book. This is a book of people's testimonies, Muslims who've come to faith in Christ. Because guess what happens? Jesus shows up in the room. He is there. And, you know, here we are in America, and we've gotten so comfortable in our air conditioning and our cars and our incomes and our you fill in all the blanks. And I'm not saying those things are bad. But I'm saying if we're not careful, they can distract us and lull us to sleep. And we can miss what the point of life is all about. To be authentic. To get in community. To make it personal. To reach a city with the gospel of Christ Jesus. So Jesus walks in. And Thomas is standing there. And Jesus, with all tenderness and all patience, knows what Thomas has said, and he gives Thomas this opportunity. So my fourth point is, how do you talk Christianly? You make it decisive. Thomas is literally behind all the other disciples. All of them are ahead of him. Jesus has already revealed himself. They already know that he's resurrected. Thomas is behind everybody. He's dead last. He's like coming up in the rear. 
And Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. And then what's Thomas' response? Anybody? My Lord. My Lord. And my God. And Thomas becomes the first man in all of Scripture, or woman, the first person in all of Scripture to go, my Lord and my God. And it's hard for us in this situation to understand what that means. But Thomas is a Jewish man, and he is saying with all the weight of the Old Testament Jewish Shema prayer. So that's out of Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when he says, my Lord and my God, what he is literally saying with the entire weight of everything he has learned and all of his experience in Judaism, he is literally saying, you are God. And he becomes the first person in all of the Bible to actually look at Christ Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. And what was the road that got him there? What was the road that got him there? Is it okay to doubt? Yeah. Is it okay to be in fear? Yeah. Is it okay to struggle? Yeah. Be authentic. Get connected. Make it personal and then be decisive. See, the Lord has called us to make it my Lord and my God. I think that we will be surprised. I don't, actually don't even have it here. I wish I did. I didn't think to bring it. But there's this little poem that somebody wrote. I don't even know who wrote it. But he, the poem is about a dream that this person had, and they're walking into the gates of heaven. And everybody is just shocked because he's there. (laughs) I think we're going to be shocked by the people who are there. And I think we're also going to be shocked by the people who aren't there. And listen to me, because this is a sober reality. What gets you there is when you say, My Lord, my God. Is it a four-step prayer? No. I'm not against that. There may be a time and a place where we call people up and have them surrender their life, but is it about a prayer? No. No, no. It's when you personally can say, My Jesus, my Lord, my God. See, Jesus calls us to believe. He called Thomas to believe, and then he calls us to believe. He actually said to him, stop doubting and believe. Now, that's a rebuke. That's a rebuke. You didn't know it. And when Thomas actually says, my Lord and my God, what he's doing, he's actually apologizing. He's actually asking forgiveness. He is like literally going, oh, goodness, I was wrong. You are my Lord, and you are my God. And one of the ways out, I might add, of doubt and fear and depression, and I'm not talking clinically, I'm talking sort of more holistically here, but one of the ways out is when you begin to take that to the Lord Jesus in repentance. Say, Lord, would you forgive me? There's things I have to take to the Lord all the time. Do you know that? Lord Jesus, would you forgive me? I love taking stuff to the Lord because what happens is the power of the cross is all of a sudden made available and activated in my life, in my marriage, with my kids, in our situation. Is it a bad thing to repent? No, I love it because it activates the power of the cross in our situation. It is amazing. 
Do you know what happens when you go to your wife and you go, you know what, I was so impatient. I am, I mean, I was really wrong. Would you forgive me? If you all have, some of you guys, if you haven't done that, you need to try that. Girls, ladies, you might need to try it too. But what happens when you humble yourself, and it's not just humbling yourself before a person, it's actually humbling yourself before him. It's making him my Lord and my God in every situation. And then it's inviting his very presence into wherever you're walking. That's when the power of God comes. That is when life is transformed. That is when all of a sudden you go from doubting Thomas or Gibson in that tent, and you've been on this journey and journey and journey, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I see. Some of you may be here and actually may have never said, my Lord and my God. And you may need to do that. Not just once, but continue to live out of that revelation. You guys uh, have probably heard of the great revivalist and evangelist D.L. Moody. You heard of D.L. Moody? I love Moody. Love this guy. He was actually here in Wilmington in 1893, March, for two weeks, doing revival meetings downtown. And Miss Carroll, the church that you go to, was started um, because coming out of that revival meeting, a group went to the Monkey Junction area, started a Sunday school, and a few years later it became a church. And then a pastor named Horace came, and it really became quite a movement. And it was born out of a D.L. Moody revival. I love that. D.L. Moody uh, had a Sunday school in Chicago. He was kind of just a funny old guy, and uh, he didn't think he could preach, and he didn't want to be in ministry. He just wanted to help people, and he's helping people, and he's beginning to preach, and um, he actually gets up, and he preaches this great, his best sermon yet, and at the end of the sermon, he actually says, everybody go home and think about it and come back next week, and we're going to talk about it. And his congregation walked out. He's in Chicago. You know what happened? The great Chicago fire erupted three or four hours after his sermon. And there was a massive portion of his actual congregation that never saw the next week. And it sent D.L. Moody into such a tailspin on the finality of life and the brevity of life. He refused to eat. He refused to drink. He locked himself in a room. His entire church and ministry and everything they built was all gone, and he didn't even care. What he was worried about was that he did not bring people to the point of saying, say it with me, my Lord, my God. And D.L. Moody, it makes this dramatic shift in his life. It's like this crossroads that he crossed over and he never went back. He went, as long as I preach, I will bring people to the point of decision where they must confront the reality of is he my Lord and is he my God? I love to, if you look at the Gospel of John here, because the Gospel of John starts with, in the beginning was the... Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was. And then in classic form, John brings this thing full circle. And what does Thomas say? My Lord, my God. And it's beautiful. It's like he he John starts by writing this book saying, He is the Word. 
And then it's this whole journey of Jesus growing up and his ministry and everything that happens. And we come to the very end of the book and Thomas goes back to the beginning. And let me tell you, church, God is interested in doing something in our day that is not new. He's actually going back to things he's done generations ago. I love that we sang old songs today. Thank you, Rick. He is doing something old. And he is looking for a people who will say, my Lord and my God. He's looking for a people who will stay connected. He's looking for a people who will be authentic. He is looking for a people who will make it personal. And listen to me. If you are willing to surrender your life like that, you have no idea how powerfully the Lord may want to use you to bless people and change society around you. And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Rick, will you come and close us? Let's pray a second. Father, I think more than anything, this is a holy moment and it's a quiet moment. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to work in our hearts here. Holy Spirit, we give you freedom to convict, to lead, to show us. Holy Spirit, we give you freedom to change us, to conform us. In the quietness of your seat, if you've never said, my Lord and my God, that's something you can do today. In the quietness of your seat, if you've lived life isolated, alone, and you know it, that's something you can bring to him and begin to change. If you're in your seats and you realize, I'm not very authentic with people around me, that's something you can also bring to him and change. Father, would you work your word down into our hearts on this day? Father, would you change us and then would you send us from this little funny cafeteria we meet into to be agents of your grace and your peace and your truth and your love and your light to this city? Father, can we look back in a decade and go, oh my goodness, look what God did. Father, would you take a ragabuffin band of people who meet before you in a cafeteria at Hoggard High School, and Lord, would you transition us in our mind from the places in which we're stuck to a people who walk with you every day and change a little slice of our world with the power of the gospel. Father, would you cause your face to shine upon us? Lord, would you meet us in our one-year Bibles? Lord, would you meet us when we turn on a worship song in our car? Lord, would you meet with us and let us know, like you did with those disciples, that you are here. Father, move in our midst.